Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come once again into this place of worship and lift praises and songs to you, Father, and to hear what you would have us understand from your word through the preaching of it through Pastor Bob this morning. We thank you for all that, Lord, and we thank you to gather once again in discipleship, this time where we do as you tell us to to, to make disciples, people who study and follow and learn who you are so that we might grow more in Christ-likeness, and that we might display your qualities and your character and grow in a, a faith that is holy and understanding of your precepts, your laws, your, your teachings, Father, so that we might be more like you. We ask that you would be in our hearts today, that we would receive this message, that we would understand it, and that through it we would grow in holiness, faith, and obedience. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In some religious teachings, there's the notion of karma. In Buddhism and Hinduism, there's the concept that we receive from the world that which we put into the world. If you put good into the world, you will get good back. If you put evil into the world, you will get evil back. It's a very cause and effect sort of religion. It's a cause and effect kind of teaching. In a way, it is biblical. We read in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. But ultimately, what you do will have consequences. But when we come to this doctrine today that we're here to study, this doctrine of common grace, we need to understand that there's a lot of differing opinions, a lot of differing views on how we're to take it. So what I'd like to do briefly is to turn to the book of Job. So Job, if you're not familiar, if you haven't read it in a while, we learn in Job 1 that Job was a righteous man. He did things that pleased the Lord. He offered sacrifices on behalf of his family. He prayed on behalf of his family. He did what was good and fitting in God's sight. Then in chapter 2, we see Satan approach God, seeking to... Um, you know, bring accounts of evil against people, to bring charges against humanity that these are evil people deserving of punishment, deserving of justice. And then God presents Job to Satan. He says, have you seen, have you considered my servant Job as an example of righteousness? And then Satan insinuates that Job is only righteous because God has blessed and protect him, protected him his whole life. So then God allows Satan to take everything from Job. And that's what Satan does. He starts by destroying everything that Job has. People come and ransack his home. They steal his livestock. They burn his houses down. And even all of his children die in the process. Everything is taken from Job. And ultimately, even his health was compromised by Satan under the authority of God. Shortly after this, Job's three friends... Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come to comfort Job. But that's where the problems start in Job. Because their words of comfort and counsel are centered on one primary issue, and that is the nature of sin. They insinuate that Job has sinned, and he has asked for this punishment to come down on him from God. So I'll read a few passages very quickly. In Job chapter 4, Beginning in verse 8, we read, and this is coming from Eliphaz. This is one of Job's uh, friends that's come to counsel him. 
And he says, according to what I have seen, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the wind of his anger they come to an end. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Then he continues in Job chapter 5. In verse 2 we read, For vexation kills the ignorant fool, and jealousy puts to death the simple. I have seen the ignorant fool taking root, and I cursed his abode suddenly. His sons are far from salvation. They are even crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. His harvest, the hungry devour, and take it to the place of thorns. And the schemer plants, and the schemer pants after their wealth. And then further down in verse 10, he gives rain on the earth, and he sends water on the fields outside, so that he sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to salvation. He frustrates the thoughts of the crafty so that their hands cannot attain success of sound wisdom. He catches the wise by their own craftiness, and the counsel of the twisted is quickly thwarted. By day they meet with darkness and grope at noon as in the night, but he saves from the sword of their mouth and the needy from the hand of the strong, so the poor has hope, and unrighteousness must shut its mouth." This is all painting a pretty broad picture of what Eliphaz thinks justice is. He thinks that if you're being punished by God, that the, the wicked will suffer. That God is bringing this punishment on Job because he has done wrong and he has sinned. We know from the first two chapters of Job that's not the case. But Job is also confused. He's struggling with this as well. proclaims his own righteousness before them. They're dealing with this as a karmic idea that only bad things happen to bad people. But if you turn to chapter 21, you'll see that Job is seeing things differently. Beginning in verse 7, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, and also become very powerful? Their seed is established with them in their presence and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from dread, and the rod of God is not on them. His ox mates and does not fail. His cow calves and does not miscarry. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children skip about. They lift up the tambourine and the harp and are glad at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to shale. They say to God, Depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we profit if we entreat him? Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. So those are two very different understandings of what God is doing. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all have this karmic idea that if you do wrong, God will bring punishment to you. Job says, no, that's not the case. I know and I see wicked men in the world, and they are thriving. Their sheep and their livestock are thriving. They're gaining more and more possessions. They themselves have more and more children. They're gaining influence in the world. When you look at it, this entire book of Job is really wrestling with that question. How does God deal 
with men in this world? How does he treat and interact with people, both good and evil? And keep in mind, the book of Job, it's widely regarded that this is the first book written, that this actual, the writing of Job actually predates even Genesis. The idea of how we deal with how God deals with good and evil in the world is a very old idea that we've been struggling with for a very long, long time. When we wrestle with this issue, we want to examine it biblically. We want to understand it as God has presented it to us, and therefore we understand it as a doctrine that we call common grace. Does anybody already know what common grace is? That's that's a that's a good enough definition. Yes, Paul. Amen. Now I don't have to read that verse because I had it all written down. Um, yeah, exactly. Wayne Grudem defines common grace as the grace of God by which He gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. This is a grace that we distinguish from saving grace. There's grace that goes out to all men, and then there is grace that saves and takes unrepentant sinners and transforms them into living beings and adopted children of God. This includes all kinds of pleasures and blessings that we see in the world Um, that we can experience in this life, be it marriage, children, wisdom, a number of others that we're going to cover in a little bit. And we see a number of biblical passages that give us this understanding. One example is the one that Paul just gave us, that God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He causes the rain to fall on good and evil people. John Murray said that common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. Now, before I actually go into the common grace itself, there are three primary points that I want to talk about first. The first being that all men receive this grace. All men receive common grace. The passage from Matthew makes it clear that every human being experiences and benefits from this grace. You yourself are just as much a partaker in that right now as you were when you were an unsaved, unrepentant sinner. You are receiving common grace now just as much as when you hated God and were at enmity with him. We have this tendency to see common grace as a grace that goes out to the unsaved and saving faith and saving grace to be grace that goes out to us. But they aren't. Saving grace is unique and special and reserved for us, but common grace goes out to all men and women and children. Second, well, no, same point. Uh, No one is deserving of God's grace, be it common grace or saving grace. There's no type of grace in which we deserve, therefore they call it grace. It's unmerited favor. Nothing we do has earned it. But that does bring me to my second point. My second concern, my second consideration is, is grace the right word? 
those of us who are saved by grace can fully attest, we understand that God has saved us and blessed us with life everlasting, even though what we deserve is death and punishment. We don't deserve to be treated nicely or kindly or lovingly. We deserve to go to hell and be punished for eternity. So can we say that a group of unsaved, unrepentant, enemies of God that will spend their entire existence in the age to come in the eternal fires of hell, can we describe those as being those who are favored by God in any way, shape, or form? Well, I believe there are many schools of thought here, but I believe the answer is both yes and no. While I wouldn't technically define common grace as grace, and I couldn't say that any of the other terms that I've heard used would, uh, would adequately describe it either, we can't deny that this quote-unquote grace is biblical. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it spoken of many, many times in Scripture that both believers and unbelievers receive certain privileges and blessings and kindness, and the love of God. It's also needed to say here that this doctrine is a direct result of God's mercy, of his providence, and it stems directly from his unique relationship with mankind. And we'll speak more to that in a minute. So just to say, though, even though I don't think grace is the proper word, and common grace might not be the best phrase for the purposes of our study, we'll use the term common grace because, you know, it's very common. And when people talk about it, I don't want you to have some random phrase that I brought up just because I think it's better. And we also need to acknowledge that while every man and woman experiences common grace, there is also such a concept as common suffering. This isn't a reward for anything. Every man, woman, and child also deals with sickness We deal with tragedies, we deal with death, we deal with disasters, we deal with accidents, and violence comes upon all men and women, be they saved or unsaved. It's indiscriminate. So my third point, and I think probably the most important point, I think that if you take anything from this study, this is what you want to focus on that everything that we characterize as common grace, all, that come, all of that comes out of one key truth, that every man, woman, and child is created in the image of God. Mankind is the only one of God's creatures to bear his image. There is no animal, there is no you know, inanimate object, there is no spirit. Even angels don't have the blessing and the grace of being created and the unique image of God. That has been reserved for man and man only. Yes, Paul. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, and we, we so some people like to put angels above us, right? And angels have even taken on the form of men at times. But it said, even though we are a little lower than the angels, we will be exalted above them. That's the purpose for which God has created us. He created both man and woman to bear his image and to fill the entire world 
with his glory through bearing that image. That is why we are here. That is the purpose for which we are created. Therefore, all these things that we consider aspects of common grace are really just manifestations of man benefiting from and or acting in accord with bearing the image of God. Right? So, yes. And they, you know, it's just another level of suppressing knowledge of God, suppressing truth and unrighteousness, desiring to do things to be uh, fully autonomous, right? To be those who, who give law to themselves. They define what is good. They define what is evil, right? It's not... Theonomy, where we let God decide what God what what is good and what is right, and let Him decide what should be law. We want to be autonomous. We want to do it ourselves. But as I said, all of these are basically just people acting in accord with being made in the image of God. That's why children are considered a common grace blessing because we are created with reproductive organs and we are told and instructed by God to go out into all the world and be fruitful and multiply, to have children. So when we abide by that and we actually have children, we're fulfilling the command of God and we're doing what God has put us on this earth to do, to fill the world with his image. Any wisdom or understanding that you have regarding any topic is a common grace blessing because God is the source of all knowledge and understanding. And we've been created to reflect him as beings that have the capacity to both understand and to act wisely in accordance with that understanding. It's a common grace blessing for us to pass laws and to convict criminals for breaking them because we are created in the image of a just and holy God. And it is good for us to have a sense of justice and respect for laws. Everything that's common grace is us just being the image of God or being receiving of blessings because we are the image of God. Do I have any questions at this point? No? There is a test. Okay. So we'll move on to the next section, which is just going through what a number of these types of common grace blessings would be. And I'm going to break it down the way Grudem does because he goes into a lot of it, and it, it just helps to break it down the way he does. And he goes into sort of realms of grace or the, the realms of the, the commonalities. Of them. So first he goes into the physical realm, right? Life, just breathing air, fresh air is a common grace of God. All men get to do it, eating Food, delicious food that we get to eat. 
is all from God. The fact that it sustains us and helps us to grow and helps our body to work as the, the functioning machine that he's created it is a common grace. The fact that we can take from the earth and create materials for clothing and for, you know, wood for, for pulpits and metal for, for microphone stands is all from God providing for us. All of our clothing, all of our shelter, the sunshine, the rainfall, the, the simple way that the earth travels around the sun and it rotates and it pivots as it moves and we have seasons that give us fall and spring and summer and winter. All the riches that man has. Anything that we have that helps people through medicine. Trust me, I take a lot of it. I know how good of a blessing it is to have medicine that helps us out. All of these things are things in the physical realm that are common grace blessings that go out to all people. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. Bad people get, you know, get medication. They all get, people get cancer and they get medication for it. They get treated for it. Same with saved people. It's a common grace blessing that goes out to all men. The immune system, unless you're like me and you have an immune system that attacks you, but you know, that, that happens. We're all corrupted by sin. This immune system is great to have. You know, I, I have MS, so my, my immune system actually attacks me if I'm not careful, but, uh, but that's the corruption of sin, too. Like I said, we all have the blessing, and we all deal with the repercussions of sin. There's, always, there's a corrupted nature in all of us. We have to understand that, but it happens. It's still a blessing, like you said. The fact that we, you know, we all have recuperative power, but we also all get older. The body's going to continue to break down. You don't get older. You're going to live another 100 years, apparently. But the rest of us have human bodies that break down over the course of time, and things happen. So, um, it's about time you were humbled. But we love you. Um, the intellectual realm. Concepts of truth, intelligence, understanding, wisdom, knowledge, enlightenment, discernment, investigation, science. These are things that we all benefit from. You know, we all, you know, I love science. I love to watch the Discovery Channel and and you know, learn how things are made and how things work and to look into cosmology and the, the lifespan of a sun and how it operates, knowing that, the, that it's, it's ultimately vapid in terms, in terms of whether or not we're ever going to see the end of a, our sun, because we won't. That's billions of years away. But I believe that God created these things with these, these extra-long life cycles so that we could understand how great and how big He is. See, That's the difference between how Saved people and unsaved people approach these topics. We want to investigate, and we want to know, and we want to be wise, and we want to, we want to scientifically observe things so that we can understand how glorious and how great God is. The unsaved man does it because he wants to understand how great he is and how great he can achieve, how great he can become 
through mastering that kind of knowledge. But he can't. In the moral realm, this is a big one, is that there's a restraint of evil. God gives to every man, woman, and child a conscience. He writes the law of God on their hearts so that they understand whether or not they're willing to suppress it or not. They understand that some of their deeds are evil deeds. And that knowledge of good and evil causes them to, at times, restrain from doing the things that they want to do. Just one second. And that continues into the moral-based laws that we create and the customs that are moral in nature that we have in nature is all because even mankind, even if you go to, you know, we, we talk about people say, well, God saved aboriginal tribes, right, that haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they say that is unfair. But if you go to those aboriginal tribes, even they understand that it's wrong to murder, and they create laws that it's wrong to murder, Right? Even small infants that they say, well, they don't have any concept of right and wrong at that point. If a baby thinks this bottle is his and I take it away, that baby would murder me if he had the strength to. He would curse me if he had uh, that kind of language and he heard it from his mom and dad. Children understand right from wrong. They're created to understand right from wrong. Yes, Paul. Once again, the unsaved man will see it as a curse. That conscience, it gets me every time. You know, somebody left the cash drawer open. I could have $500 in my pocket if I was just willing to take it out. But there's something holding me back telling me it's a bad thing to do. Where I say, God, thank you for holding me back. Because if you weren't holding me back, I'd probably be doing something way stupider right now. You know, it's how we approach it. Louis Burkhoff says, common grace curbs the destructive power of sin maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly, orderly life possible, distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men, promotes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings upon the children of men. Next, we have the creative realm. And this is probably one of the hardest, well, it's not the hardest to grasp, but it's certainly one that we always struggle with as Christians, right? When you look at creativity in the world, people that are skilled at art or music or cooking or writing, right? Or athletes, people that, that tame the body and they, they seek to, to, to push themselves physically. Creativity can be one of the most beautiful things in the world, but it can also be one of the most unholy things in the Right? When we think about movies or shows or stuff like that, you know, it's hard to, you know, even shows that I like, you know, just regular sitcoms that I've liked over, over the course of my life, you know, they're enjoyable. I, see, I can watch them, but you realize just how, how often something like blasphemy takes place, 
people saying, oh, my G-O-D, you know, or they, they use Jesus Christ's names as a place of a curse word. And these are considered family programming, you know, that these, these blasphemies have just made it so much into the culture. They've, infested, they've, they've infested the culture to that degree where everybody uses them without even thinking. And it happens all over the place, right? Yeah, you'll find it all over the place. It's it's an unfortunate uh, reality. Uh, yes, sister. Yeah, Paul. And, and in this creative realm, we understand that as well. That as people are enslaved to sin, their ex- creative expressions are going to reflect sin to one degree or another. Right? You can have, you know, Michelangelo's David, where you have this, it's just the male form. You know, it's a naked man, but it's meant to represent the male form as God has created it. Doesn't mean it's trying to glorify God. And then other people will create paintings and pictures that are pornographic in nature that display human beings having sexual relations with one another, right? You have songs where people are expressing their brokenness over a relationship or something else. Some, I've, I've heard songs that I absolutely love that are just people, you know, I, I used to listen to a lot of, well, I still listen to a lot of rock music from when I was a kid, 
right? And a lot of those kids, those, those bands were dealing with a lot of drug habits and they were dealing with a lot of suffering from those drug habits. And to hear a person belt out how much they're suffering because of their, their drug habits is actually a good thing. To hear people expressing brokenness over sin and how much it's destroying their lives. And then you hear a lot of music today about, you know, people just trying to, you know, hook up with one another and singing about how great their bodies are and stuff like that. You know, there's no glorification in that. They're, they're self-glorifying themselves. They're trying to show how great they are. So you can have both good and bad. The point is that if you come to this from a Christian worldview, from a Christian perspective, as somebody who's been redeemed by grace, you'll understand these things rightly as you experience them. Somebody have their hand up? Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to get a little bit into that in just a little bit. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yes, sister. Degree. I mean, I'd probably prefer to see it as the three crosses. You know, if you're talking about it in gospel terms, I've always liked the image of three crosses, right? Because there you have two men that are crucified alongside Christ, right? And they are equally mocking him. And then there's a point where one repents and he calls out to Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, those men were both thieves, right? They both had intelligence. They both had, you know, but they were also both crafty. And they decided to use it to steal from others. But at the end of the day, only one of them turned to Christ and said, you don't deserve this punishment. I deserve this punishment. Please save me and remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Right? So ultimately, it comes down to that. Who's willing to humble themselves, repent of sin, turn to Christ in faith. That's what, you know, that's, that's really the scale we want to see. Uh, somebody else have their hand up? No? Okay. In societal realm, organizations, types of, uh, you know, uh, volunteer organizations, charitable organizations, governments, 
educational services, family structures, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, children, cousins, uh, uncles, aunts, things like civil law, judicial systems, police, business relationships, business itself, the fact that you can go into a store and buy items for a particular amount of money and there's there's an even, honest exchange of goods not bartering you're not haggling you're not being uh you're not being swindled even friendships that you have with people this is all things we consider a part of what makes a society and society is a common grace that goes out to all men it's how we relate to one another and function uh alongside one another these are all graces of god imagine where we would be without a judicial system imagine where we would be without education right a good thing, and it's you know the, a lot of these things were started from Christians. A lot of the educational systems that we have now were started by Christians who understood the need and the importance in education. And we don't just educate Christians; we educate everybody because we see how education benefits all men. In the religious realm, there's also common grace where even in man-centered, man-created religions like Mormonism, Muslims, Buddhism, Hinduism, you see an acknowledgement of a higher power, you see a recognition of sin, and you see an effort to do good, to pray, and to worship an eternal being. So you see that. You see that those things are inherent in us, that we understand, just as Romans 1 tells us, that God has created us, and God has created enough evidence in the world itself, aside from saving grace and aside from, from, from saving revelation, to understand that there is a God who is powerful, who has created us on this world to reflect righteousness, and that we fall short of that righteousness. Even atheists who deny any kind of religious or any kind of religion at all, even themselves, will always, always say that laws are a good thing and that it's good that we keep people in line. And they will, they, you know, they have an atheist church now. Just one second, Sister Paul had his hand up. Go ahead, brother. Amen. Yeah, it's uh sorry. Yeah, indeed it is, and we should we should 
understand that as we as we look at how we experience these common graces that God gives to us. Yes, Marcia. So, like I said, grace might not be the right word, but there's plenty of scriptures that say that God acts lovingly, kindly towards them. We are to pray for our enemies, right? We're to pray for our leaders, right? There's, there's plenty of scriptures that say that God is dealing with people. I would, I would say it's, it's more mercifully or loving or kindness towards them, but it's, grace feels like the wrong. Uh, which kind of brings us to our next point, because we, we've gone through all the realms of common grace, and it's just important to understand that whatever this grace is, it's not saving grace. In no way, shape, or form will this grace save any man. Everybody receives it, but nev- not everybody receives it in the same way. As we said, we experience these graces differently than people in the world. They will take advantage of knowledge. They will take advantage of the life that they have been given. They will take advantage of their creativity. All these things to puff themselves up, to declare themselves self-autonomous, to declare themselves over God, to deny God. They will use these things for their own purposes and to their own devices. We do not. We experience them and we respond with gratitude and thanksgiving towards God for giving us the things that he's given us. You know, we thank God for a beautiful sunset. We thank God for children. We thank God for the life that we have. And we thank God at times, if we're understanding things rightly, for the common sufferings we have, for the brevity of life that makes us rely and trust in him, for the sicknesses that call us to humility and repentance and have us fall back on our Lord and Savior and not trusting in medicines or doctors to keep us healthy for the rest of our lives. We're not going to be healthy for 100 years and then just drop dead. That would probably be easier. That's not how it works. We suffer and we struggle and we have trials that all point us to God. Even when we fall into sin, Galatians says we have that schoolmaster that points us to Christ. Common grace does not bring repentance. Isaiah 64 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us, whether like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, carry us away. And that's common because we're all sinners. All of our good works are as filthy rags before God. Ephesians 2, it says, Works do not save you. It is the grace of God that saves a man. Our works don't save us. The unclean, the unrighteous person, the unrepentant, their good works don't save them. And common grace works don't save either. All unbelievers' actions, even common grace ones, are sinful in nature. Even as they act in ways we might consider good, they 
they still suppress their truth and unrighteousness. We were just talking about. In Romans 14, we read, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating not from faith, and whatever is not faith is sin. And anything that an unrepentant, unbeliever, unelected person is doing is going to be done without faith. So it's all sin. It's all worthless. The last point here is that not everything that we would categorize as common grace can be considered good. Both saved and unsaved people can commit acts of common grace that are evil, be it committed out of an impure motive or through the act itself just being twisted and unholy as we saw in the creative order, the creative realm, right? Uh, some of these things that we do are done in rebellion to God, right? Some, you know, some people have that kill them with kindness attitude, right? You're kind to people just because you want to you wanna look down on them. Like These people aren't as kind as I am. They're not as refined. I'll get them in the end. I'm just going to be kind to them until it drives them crazy. People do things like that. So not everything that we would consider good, and yes, it's a good thing to not snap at people and be nasty to people, but if you're doing it just because it makes you feel better about yourself, it's not really worth anything. Be good to your enemies. Love your enemies. That's what Jesus teaches us. So uh, the final points I want to make real quick are why does God... Common grace. To what purposes? And I have four listed here. These are the ones that come out of Grudem's book, and I think they're they're apt. I was trying to think of some more, and I think these are efficient, that they're effective. The first one is that he gives us common grace to save and elect people. He's carrying out his purposes. In Matthew 13, we read, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landover came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, As an enemy has done this, the slaves said to him, Do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. God allows good and people, good and bad people to exist on this world at the same time. And we might think that it's Rather, the bad people weren't here, but we all started off as bad people. We weren't always wheat. We were tares in the beginning, and he allows them to grow together because there is a time of harvest coming. There's a point of judgment at which he will gather them up, and he will deal with them at that point in time. Up until then, God is carrying out his purposes. The gospel goes out for that very purpose, to change tares into wheat and to call and elect people to himself that will be saved on the day of that harvest. Second, he demonstrates his goodness. God uses common grace as a means to demonstrate his own love, mercy, power, sovereignty, patience, and kindness. 
doesn't do these things because they are deserved or earned by anybody in mankind. He does them because they are part of his nature. By be him being a powerful, good, kind, loving God, he is going to act as a good, kind, loving, patient God. That those are his attributes, and they will be demonstrated. But there's also that other attribute of justice. Our third point is that he uses this as a means to demonstrate his justice. The fact that God continues to care for, provide for, demonstrate love towards, bestow temporary blessings on the unelect doesn't mean that God is approving of their deeds, and it doesn't mean that he's failing to judge the sins of these people. Instead, God demonstrates his patience and his long-suffering attributes towards them by delaying justice in order to allow his sovereign decree to work itself out for good. As we know, as we just said, the day of judgment is still going to be upon the wicked. In Romans 2.5 we read, Because your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul brought up the flood earlier. What does Jesus say about the flood and the second coming? He said, for just as it was in the days of Noah, when they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage, all things we would consider common grace, they were not prepared when the flood came and swept them all away. They were experiencing all of these common grace blessings and they were swept away in a flood that murdered, that killed everybody on the planet but eight people and some animals. Yes, Paul. couple of minutes left to remember. Let me know. Um, I came across this, this quote by Donald Barnhouse, famous preacher, and he's writing, I don't know where this comes from, uh, I pulled it out of another article, but he's writing, it appears he's writing to unbelievers here, and he writes, you are not a believer in Christ, and yet you still are out of hell. That is the grace of God. You are not in hell, but you are on earth in good health and prosperity. That is the common grace of God. The vast majority of those who read these words are living in comfortable homes or apartments. That is common grace. You are not fleeing as refugees along the highways of a country desolated by war. That is common grace. You come home from your job and your child runs to meet you in good health and spirits. That is common grace. You are able to put your hand in your pocket and give the child a quarter or a half dollar for an allowance. It is common grace that you have such abundance. You go into your house and sit down to a good meal. That is common grace. On the day that you read these words, there are more than a billion and a half members of the human race who will go to sleep without enough to satisfy their hunger. The fact that you have enough is common grace. You do not deserve it. So... So we read these words, and like I said, common grace might not be the right phrase, but the man's got a point. 
There's a lot of blessings and a lot of things that we receive from God that we don't deserve, that nobody deserves, and yet everybody, well, most people receive, like I said, things desolated by war, going hungry. There are people suffering with that. But people are going to suffer and people are going to receive what we consider common grace. Yes, brother. Judges them, why? Because it's part of his nature. It's one of his qualities that he is just and that he will judge sin. So therefore, the wicked must be punished. Amen. Amen. Um, and the final point, the reason, you know, this kind of is at the, the center of everything that we talk about in this building at all. The reason why common grace exists is to glorify God. All of these things exist so that we can understand what we have, who we are in light of who God is, that we are sinners in light of a holy, perfect God, and that he gives us blessing upon blessing, and us particularly, that we have been spared judgment. Right? If you have a proper biblical theology, like I said, the the biblical theology book I bring up all the time just because the title is so perfect that the entire Bible is about this title where it says God's glory and salvation through judgment. We are spared judgment because we all deserve judgment and yet we are spared and God is glorified through what he has done to accomplish that through his son, Jesus Christ. Final quote I'll read from a Lutheran preacher named Joseph Sittler who said, Augustine said that we are all born into a world of common grace i.e. available to all. Before one is baptized, or even if one never is, such grace meets one in God's creation. There is grace in the pear tree that blooms and blushes. There is common grace in the sea, that massive cleanliness which we are proceeding to corrupt, and the fact that there was, before we laid hands on it, clean air. Our task is to appreciate that grace. Like I said, Understand that grace goes out, this common grace that we call it, goes out to all men because we are created in the image of God. We seek to understand his glory because we have been designed for that purpose. To respond to his glory, to reflect his glory, to reflect his perfection in this world and everything that we consider good, whether it happens to unsaved or saved people, is all meant to demonstrate his goodness towards us. Do I have any final points or questions? Yes, sister. Um... I'd have to review that parable. I mean, you want to be careful with parables, just in the fact that parables are usually offered to us through Jesus to make one key point. And there can be a lot of typology in certain parables, but you want to be careful. I mean, obviously, anything that's being provided for sustenance-wise or anything from God is always going to be considered, you know, 
gracious, loving kindness towards them. So even if it's typologically true, then yes. But I don't know if that's what it was meant to say, so I'd have to review it. Anyone else? Yes. And we understand that it's grace. He he acts provisionally towards them to provide them with food and sustenance. And yet, every one of those creatures and everything that he created in the first five days of creation was made for us to subdue, for us to be in control of, as created in his image, who who should be able to subdue creation. Right? He wants us to be active and authoritative over it. All those animals provide food for us. He was providing food for the whole world. All of the plants that we either use for food or sometimes we use for poison or sometimes we use for medicine, that's us going into the world and subduing it the way that God has meant for us as he created us. Yes, sir. Yes. Mm-hmm. No, common grace is indiscriminate goes out to all men and in just about always now God sometimes will bring judgment in 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 time right he will bring judgment upon people here and now as he did to Pharaoh right who refused to let the people go and then he brought he he slayed them all in the sea in the Red Sea right as he saved his people out of Egypt um, Nebuchadnezzar right he allowed him to, to go mad and to go into the wilderness for a time before he brought him where he seemed to have a saving faith near the end, you know, he was glorifying God in his last in his last days. So God will bring judgment at times, but that doesn't mean that he has to. Sometimes the judgment of wicked men is meant to judge other people on the earth as well. Right? So, you know, you look at was it Isaiah 9, you see the Assyrians coming down to judge Israel. God judges the Assyrians, too, for the wickedness in their heart, but it was meant to judge Israel for their wickedness. So, um, so yeah, God isn't, doesn't need to act in a just, fair way that we consider just and fair. You know, we see, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to see Putin get dealt with. I don't like seeing what's going on in Ukraine, but God has his purpose for it, and he will deal with people like Putin, in his good time. Anyone else? Yes, Marvel. 
Right. And like you just said, the evil prospering. It's where we just started with Job. It's the whole reason people struggle with this doctrine is because we have this idea that evil people should be dealt with swiftly and that justice should be kept should be counted out immediately and that any delay seems to seems to be unjust in one way shape or form but that's not how God operates he will deal with people in his good time we can trust him we can know that and we can glorify him as the one who ultimately saved us yes last question Michelle If you get hurt in the street and an ambulance comes, you're going to say, wait, before you help me, are you a Christian? No. Just know what you're doing. And, you know, if I pass out, resuscitate me, please. And if there's a Muslim laying on the street beside me, I would expect the same for that person. It's being, it's being good. Amen. Uh, all right, last point, and then we, we're going to go. Amen. Reminds me of what the Bible says where it says, God is not slow to act as some consider slowness, but is long-suffering towards you so that all will be saved. So with that, Paul, could you close us out in prayer, please?
Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a good week.